From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Green Revolution and the pesticides it brought to help feed the developing world bypassed the East African nation of Uganda. Now that turns out to have been a boon for a growing number of Ugandan farmers who have gone organic. Here in Uganda, the potential is big because uh, most of the land has not been used. And uh, that is the best land for organic farming. Also, the nutria, a beaver-like critter from South America, was brought to the U.S. to build up a fur trade. But nutria have wound up eating away wetlands and evading the best efforts of science to get rid of them. We have a pretty good sense for how to to go out and trap nutria. We don't have a very good sense at all about how to control a population. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. California often has lively politics, and with a recall election in the offing, the Green Party may well play a key role in this year's emerging drama. An unprecedented budget deficit has critics of Democratic Governor Gray Davis blaming him for the Golden State's financial woes. And though the signatures will need to be verified, a movement to recall the governor seems to have enough of them on a petition to trigger a recall vote. A Green Party candidate, Peter Cameo, has declared he will run on any recall ballot, and that has some Democrats worried that the Greens could siphon support away from Governor Davis, the way some claim Ralph Nader spoiled Al Gore's last presidential bid. With me to explain all this is political scientist Henry Brady of the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, Professor, welcome. Hello. Now, what happens if this recall petition gets enough signatures? I understand the voters are going to be looking at a, should we say, unusual ballot? It's going to be very unusual. It's going to include two questions. The first question is going to ask, do you think that Gray Davis, our governor, should be recalled? Yes, no. And no matter how you answer that question, or even if you you, uh, don't vote on that, you can go on and uh, actually respond to the second question, which is, which of the following people should be our next governor? Gray Davis cannot appear on that second list. But almost anybody else can, because it's very easy to get on the list. You don't need many signatures. You don't need much money. So if enough people vote yes on that first question, remove the elected governor... That would have to be a majority of the people voting. Then the state tallies the answers for the second question, who would take his place. And I would think most certainly there would be Republican choices. We don't know whom yet. But it doesn't look like the voters will have much in the way of Democrats to choose from, I would think. Well, that's part of the strategy that people are trying to get at right now. The Democrats so far have gotten together and said, look, let's agree that none of us are going to put up our name for that second question, and therefore will force Democratic and independent voters to decide that they're going to be against the recall, keep Gray Davis, and go from there. But now, of course, there's Peter Camejo of the Green Party. Tell us a little about him and and, and what he's decided. Well, Peter Camejo is an old Berkeley activist uh, who was uh, active during the 60s. He's gotten now involved uh, with the Green Party, uh, and he's decided that... uh, Uh, What he should do is put his name up for this ballot. Uh, He ran for governor uh, in the past, and he's run uh, for, I think, some other offices as well. But he's he's basically not anybody who's ever gotten elected to anything. When he's run for governor, what's he done in terms of votes? He did get a fair number of votes when he ran for governor, uh, somewhere in the 5% range, if my memory serves. Now, the Green Party really took it on the chin from the Democrats for 
some would say, making it possible for President Bush to be elected. Um, so how do they feel about uh, Peter Cameo running? Uh, is the Green Party endorsing him? Uh, what's the thinking here? At the moment, they're not. Uh, it's a complicated situation for the Green Party. They certainly remember 2000, where a lot of people thought that the 95,000 votes or so in Florida that went to Ralph Nader were taken away from Al Gore, and they're not real excited about doing that kind of thing again. Uh, so what they've decided for the moment is that the situation is very fluid, very complicated, and so they're not going to take any position on whether or not they endorse Peter Cameo. However, I've been in contact with some of the folks in the Green Party, and they've told me that the situation is fluid and they might change their mind. Uh, at the same time, of course, they're worried that uh, in this situation it's not clear but that there might not be a backlash. And so there's another constituency within the Green Party that says, gee, if we're not careful here, we're going to have a terrible backlash against the Greens because we're going to be the people who led to a situation where maybe perhaps a far-right Republican candidate becomes governor. I want you to uh, step inside of Peter Camejo's mind for a moment. I know it's impossible to really know what anyone else is thinking, but what do you think he's thinking getting into this race? I think he's thinking that he wants the Green Party to get a lot of attention. Uh, he wants to push forward the ideas of the Green Party. Parties, Third parties always live in hopes that tomorrow will be the day when suddenly their support will increase. I think they also see the, the Green Party right now in general, a very weak Democratic Party that can't seem to get its act together. And so they have great hopes that maybe the Greens could, in fact, ultimately do what some parties in the past in American history have done, some third parties have done, which is to become the, the new second party. So... Today, how conceivable do you think it is that the Green Party could provide the margin uh, of victory to, uh, for the Republicans? It revolves around the question of how many Democrats in the end are going to be so mad at Gray Davis that they're going to decide that they'll vote for the recall. And is it possible that the small number of Greens out there who will also decide to vote for the recall because they want to vote for Peter Cameo could then put it over the top, that is to say, create the recall situation where we'd have to decide who our new governor was by the second question. Henry Brady is a political scientist and public policy professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. If ever there was a poster child for invasive species, the nutria would be it. Nutria are beaver-like animals native to South America. They were brought to the U.S. in the 1940s to build up the fur trade in the South, but with no natural predators, their numbers exploded. In Maryland, nutria are literally eating away at the very foundation of the fragile wetlands that line the Chesapeake Bay. So government officials there have come up with a plan to eradicate these tenacious rodents. Living on Earth, Cynthia Graber reports. This is one unhappy nutria. The reddish-brown animal bangs against the walls of the metal trap it had the misfortune to walk into. A nutria looks like a cross between a large rat and a beaver, complete with a long, flat tail. Mark Scherfe is one of the lead researchers of the nutria program here at the Blackwater Wildlife Refuge. He crouches next to a couple of colleagues who inspect the animal. As you can see, the animal's got several adaptations that allow it to be to successfully colonize an aquatic habitat such as this. You notice the position of the ears are very high up on the head um, that you know keeps them out of the water while the animal is swimming. The webbed hind feet uh, allow the animal to propel itself through the water. Sherfy and his team are on a small island of brown and green rushes, squishy mud underfoot. 
This island is one of many here at the 26,000-acre refuge. They're separated from each other and the wetlands on shore by narrow, lazy waterways. After a half-century of nutria infestation, these marshes are fast disappearing under the rodents' sharp, fiery-colored incisors. The orange teeth that you see are a very distinctive feature. They're used to, to gnaw away at the root mat of the marsh that you're standing on. Um, the below-ground portions of, of many of the plants that you see are a favored source of forage for the animal. And they use the, the teeth and their, their front legs to excavate roots and, and tubers from wetland plants. Sherfy's co-workers slip a restraining noose on the animal's head to keep it from biting. They weigh it, tag it, and check its health. I don't see any parasites. Ticks. Sherfy points out that the very tip of the animal's tail is gone. There you often see a, a stub of just a few inches. They seem to be susceptible to uh, frostbite damage this far north. Here in Maryland, we're at the northernmost reaches of the Nutria's east coast invasion. They've also established themselves throughout Louisiana and the Mississippi Delta, and even in California and Oregon, all places where people introduce Nutria in the hopes of establishing a profitable fur trade. Those profits never materialized. Instead, those areas were left with a pest that has almost no predators. Unfortunately, what it does have is an amazing ability to reproduce year-round. A single female can give birth to eight pups, and four months later, when she's ready to mate again, her offspring are almost sexually mature themselves. Current estimates of the Chesapeake's nutria population run as high as 50,000. We have a pretty good sense for how to, to go out and trap nutria. We don't ha have a very good sense at all at, about how to control a population. Great Britain is the only place to have eradicated invasive nutria entirely. To do so, researchers there studied the animals for years before actually trapping them. One of the things that they learned there was about dispersal or movement of nutria and the fact that you had to account for and understand movement patterns of animals locally in order to be able to eradicate a population. The factors that, that uh, influence movement rates in Great Britain are likely to be different from here. Differences in weather, differences in how habitats are arranged. Hence the study here on the Chesapeake. For the first year and a half, researchers tagged and occasionally attached radio collars to animals at six study sites in and around the Blackwater Refuge. They've learned where the animals roam and how reproduction fluctuates with the seasons. Using this information, they've designed an intensive harvest program. Harvest is a polite word for trapping and killing the animals using humane methods approved by the American Veterinary Medical Association. As counterintuitive as it may seem, harvesting could lead to more nutria. That's because there would be less competition for food among the remaining animals. Those animals could be healthier and thus have larger litters. So researchers will perform autopsies on some of the pregnant females to see if that's true. If this limited harvesting shows good results, the effort will be stepped up throughout the Chesapeake. But for now, all trapped animals are set free. The team has finished studying the nutria captured today. I think that's it. One assistant takes the noose off the animal and lifts up the back of the cage. The nutria slips silently back into the water, its death sentence delayed. Sherfy admits that it's a little frustrating to watch these destructive critters swim away.
we could be taking these animals out of the population, but in the long term we think we're going to gain more by understanding these animals and applying what we learn from these animals to control and eradication over the long, long haul. Scientists here also hope to isolate nutria pheromones that might be effective in luring out some of the more remote animals. Other states are dealing with the nutria problem in their own way. In Louisiana, for example, the state government there is actively encouraging chefs to create recipes for nutria meat. Here in Maryland, researchers hope that years down the road they will be rid of nutria entirely, bringing them one step closer to saving the Chesapeake's marshes. For Living on Earth, I'm Cynthia Graber. Just ahead, a monster at your local pond. But first, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey. Macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness among Americans over 60. The condition is caused when the macular or central portion of the retina either becomes clouded with fatty deposits or fluid from leaky blood vessels. Patients who have the condition can end up with crippling loss of their straight-ahead vision. Though the cause of macular degeneration is unclear, risk factors include smoking and advancing age. There's no cure for the condition, but now the results of a new study may indicate a way to slow its progression. Harvard researchers followed 261 people with mild macular degeneration. They found that over the course of about four and a half years, overweight patients were more than twice as likely to have their vision deteriorate compared to those not overweight. The researchers also found that physical activity seemed to slow the progression of the disease. People who vigorously exercised at least three times a week had a 25% slower rate of disease progression compared to those who didn't exercise at all. Researchers don't know how weight and exercise influence macular degeneration, but they suspect they may affect the blood vessels that remove waste products from the retina. That's this week's Health Update. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week in 1870, John Wesley Hyatt patented the first plastic-making process in response to an unusual challenge. Two years before, a New York billiard company had offered a $10,000 prize to anyone who could find a replacement for ivory billiard balls. The resilience and moisture resistance of ivory made it highly prized as a material for billiards, but it was awfully expensive. Billiard makers had experimented with different substitutes, including steel, iron, and even sawdust shellacked with animal blood. John Hyatt first tried coating layers of cloth with nitrocellulose, a substance made by dipping cotton in nitric acid. Trouble with that was it formed an explosive. There was talk that out west these pyrotechnic billiard balls had cowboys reaching for their six-shooters when they thought they heard gunfire coming from the pool halls. It's debatable just how explosive these billiards really were, but Mr. Hyatt realized he still needed something better. He then discovered that by combining nitrocellulose with camphor, it would harden into a non-explosive substance that he called celluloid. Celluloid became the favored material for billiard balls, and John Hyatt became the father of the pliable material we now know as plastic. Ivory billiard sets still exist, but they can no longer be racked up for a game of pool. Decades of temperature change have distorted them into the shape of ovals. But plastic, of course, can stick around just about forever. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Who 
can think of a more peaceful scene than a summer day by the local pond. But for author and Living on Earth commentator Cy Montgomery, it's the battle going on underneath the surface that attracts her to the water's edge. I've always loved creatures with spines, venom, or fangs, nature red in tooth and claw. I write books on tarantulas and bears and man-eating tigers. Even as a student reading Beowulf, I was rooting for Grendel. And that's one reason I'm drawn to the ponds near my house in New Hampshire. That's where a real-life sci-fi show is playing, starring a real-life blood-curdling monster. You'll see it at the edge of the pond, where the mud is soft and warm, and where newts dart among the pickerel weed and frogs grin up from the shallows. A Volkswagen-shaped brown beetle paddles gently along on blade-like legs. But don't be deceived by the benign appearance. Though no insect looks more innocent, none are more fierce or voracious. This is the domain of the predaceous diving beetle. Across the country, in ponds, in pools, in the sidewaters of streams, legions of these beetles seize and gobble up almost everything that moves. Not just other bugs. Salamanders, fish, tadpoles, not even adult frogs are safe from the predaceous diving beetle. But wait, aren't things with backbones like fish and frogs supposed to eat bugs and not the other way around? Ah, but that is the glory of creatures like these. The predaceous diving beetle, like any good monster, is a superpower breaking all the rules. It can fly as well as swim. It breathes through its back end. It carries its own underwater air supply. When it floats to the surface, it lifts its wing covers, collects a silver bubble of air, and dives again. There is only one predator in the pond more fearsome than an adult predaceous diving beetle. A baby predaceous diving beetle. The beetle's larval form is called a water tiger, and with good reason. It looks sort of like a shrimp with a head borrowed from someone's nightmare. Sickle-shaped hollow jaws clutch its prey and funnel flesh-digesting drool into the victim. The water tiger literally sucks its prey dry. Lucky for us, they aren't any bigger. All they're going to do if they get inside a bathing suit is nip. So safer than we'd be in the presence of, say, a man-eating tiger... We can appreciate the predaceous diving beetle for what it is, a predator par excellence. Don't get me wrong. My mother was a hunter, but I'm a vegetarian, for goodness sake. Yet I deeply admire predators, and not just for their grace and skill. I admire their very ferocity. Ferocity and cruelty are often considered synonyms, and that might be true for ferocious people. But there is no cruelty to the water tiger's bite, or the bite of a real tiger. Each predator is carrying out a survival plan that took millions of years of evolution to hone. But there is a second definition of ferocity. Extreme, marked by unrelenting intensity. This is what I love about predators. I think it's good for us, we who seem to seek only convenience and comfort, to see the life and death dramas of the natural world. This is the real world. And it's good to know that life itself is, or should be, intense, whether you're a tiger, or a beetle, or a person. In our comfy, insulated lives, it's easy to be anesthetized by simple routine. My antidote to that is at the pond. That's where I'll be this summer, rooting for the monster. Cy Montgomery is author of Search for the Golden Moon Bear, Science and Adventure in Pursuit of a New Species. 
And beginning in August, you can hear Sai read her book in daily installments at our website at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org to hear the golden moon bear in August. President Bush's tour of Africa has taken him to five nations on that continent, all countries that currently enjoy relative stability. One of them is Uganda. Uganda is endowed with an ample amount of fertile land and regular rainfall, but is still recovering from the dark days when it was ruled by the infamous dictator Idi Amin. The success of that recovery depends in great part on Uganda's agricultural exports. And as Jesse Graham reports, Ugandan farmers are learning that supplying the booming market in organic products is one way to bolster their success. In a shady clearing tucked between neat rows of banana trees and papaya groves, two Ugandan farmers scrub, label, and box tiny golden pineapples. These fragrant packages are bound for Germany, where the fruit will grace the shelves of fancy supermarkets and health food stores. Patrick Sembia contributed 126 pineapples today from his two-and-a-half-acre plot down the road. His land is one of Uganda's 28,000 certified organic farms. According to the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, Uganda has the fourth-largest number of such farms in the world. The country, which is about the size of Oregon, leads Africa and most of the developing world in this highly lucrative market. But organic farming isn't easy. Sembia says without chemicals, he has to hire workers to dig out weeds. Because we are not spraying, we are digging. As you know, digging is not a, a simple thing. We have other laborers, to, they help us to, to dig. But that's really a hard job. Before he went organic, Sembia earned less than $20 a month. By complying with organic standards, the 36-year-old father of three has increased his profits over 200%. Farmers like Sembia can't do this alone. They're members of a cooperative started by a company with strong export connections. We approached him and uh, we taught them how, what is the importance of organic Seko Weki works for Amfree Farms. Amfree pays its 82 farmers a premium of 25 cents per pineapple. Before they went organic, these farmers didn't export. Uganda has never been able to compete with more developed countries when it comes to shipping out conventional produce. In the local market, a surplus of fruit in the high season drives prices down, bringing farmers only pennies for their produce. With the premium the farmers are paid for organics, they earn a steady wage year-round. Weki and his colleagues train small farmers to comply with organic standards. They told us that you have to say to, to teach us what is organic. So it's what our company is doing. We are teaching them, we are training them organically. Neighboring Kenya and Tanzania have only a fraction of the number of organic farms thriving in Uganda. Sarah Shear, an agricultural economist at Forest Trends, a Washington, D.C.-based conservation organization, attributes Uganda's success in organics to companies like Amfree. What has happened in the case of the development of markets for organic products from, from Uganda is you've had a great combination that, of the strengthening of local cooperatives of farmers, the development of supportive NGOs and other kinds of agencies that have provided marketing advice as well as technical advice. And you've had buyers that were, were willing and interested to, to promote this as a new source of supply. Amfri's head, Amin Shivji, owns the largest organic farm in Uganda. 
His four-year-old business earned over a half million dollars last year. In addition to the fresh fruit he exports to Europe, he also ships out dried ginger, papaya, bananas, and pineapple to the U.S. and Canada. He plucks a golden pineapple from a grove on his 1,500-acre estate, two hours north of Uganda's capital, Kampala. I'll just show you a tiny little baby pineapple. Oh, there. That's the pineapple. We'll go and cut this so you will see how sweet it is. Ten years ago, nothing grew here but weeds. Shivji was one of 70,000 Asians expelled by Idi Amin in 1972 in a bid to Africanize the country. He abandoned his thriving sugar plantation three months after the despotic ruler issued his ultimatum. After working as a businessman and raising a family in Canada, Shivji returned to his farm in 1990 when President Yoweri Museveni invited Indians back to reclaim their land. He remembers driving up the bumpy road. It was quite an emotional experience. It was a very hot day, and, and everywhere I saw, I, I, nostalgia overcame me. I, I remembered this and that. Um, of course, um, things had changed a lot until I came to the farm, and I almost missed it because it was all bush at that time. Uh, and finally, I found the road going up to where my house used to be. The farm was in the heart of Luero, the region most ravaged by years of rebel wars. Shivji found skulls scattered among the rusted tractors, crumbled buildings, and bramble-filled fields. I had heard that one of the army officers uh, was running the farm. Uh, my aim was to take a quick look and just run away. And um, uh, I was very, very sad. It, it was absolutely bush. There was absolutely nothing. All the buildings had been broken down. There was hardly a foundation left on all of them. It took years for Shivji to wrestle his farm from the government. It wasn't until 1998 that he figured out how to make his vast acreage work. With a Swiss partner schooled in low-tech farming, he made the switch to organics. The conversion was an easy one in part because years of war and grinding poverty had kept Uganda from joining the Green Revolution, the agriculture movement that pushed chemicals and heavy machinery to increase crop yields. Today, Shibji employs a staff of 45 on his farm. Paul Ngugi is a Kenyan who came to Uganda to manage the field workers. He says organics haven't been as quick to catch on in his native country, where years of factory farming have made the conversion tricky. Here in Uganda, the potential is big because uh, when we compare countries like in Kenya, uh, organic farming there is difficult because of years of uh, conventional farming practices. So the soils are depleted out of their nutrients. But when you come to Uganda, most of the land has not been used. And uh, the, the, that is the best land for organic farming. Yeah. Back in the tiny village of Mataba, Shivji's cooperative members are done packaging pineapples for the day. They snack on overripe fruit under the shade of a mango tree. Farmer Emmanuel Nisabuga gives a tour of his organic groves of banana, coffee, and papaya. He already owns 15 acres, far more than the average Ugandan farmer. He hopes to expand his business. I want to buy another land. This is too small. I want more land than this I have. If I get enough land, I can increase. Advocates of organics say chemical-free agriculture techniques have benefits beyond lifting farmers like Nisibuga out of poverty. 
They believe organic farming practices can provide food security without harming the environment. For Living on Earth, I'm Jesse Graham in Mataba, Uganda. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12, and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR President's Council. The Canadian Rockies are part of the home range of the much-fabled bird, the raven. Author and naturalist Ben Gadd makes a living pointing out these big black birds as a mountain guide in the province of Alberta. He's written a book about the raven, a nature guide in the form of a novel. Bruce Barcott has this review of Raven's End. From the creation stories of Native Americans to the dark murmurings of Edgar Allan Poe, ravens have always been cast as mystical, otherworldly creatures. In Ben Gad's novel Raven's End, though, the cunning blackbirds aren't magical tricksters or portents of death. They're as smart, curious, and diabolical as humans, and when they get together, they're as chatty as a church social. Of course, Raven's End is a novel in which everything talks. The ravens, the wolves, the falcons, the trees... Even the wind can't shut up. Gad, a naturalist and the author of a classic field guide to the Canadian Rockies, has written a kind of watership down for the Great White North, a story in which a young raven goes on a hero's journey in search of the meaning of life. Our hero is Colin, a bright, impetuous raven who drops from the sky with no memory of his past. The Raven's End flock of Mount Yamnuska, east of Banff, adopts the orphan as one of its own. Colin's flockmates are a diverse lot, There's eager young Brendan, frail Sarah, wise old Greta, and dark and violent Dolus. Colin spends his first year learning how to survive as a raven, which entails eating a lot of rotten meat and observing a strict social protocol. Mornings begin with the flap, an all-flock huddle where the birds gossip about freshly killed elk and sheep. After a day of scavenging, the birds regroup for the evening flight, where the ravens gab about their adventures and perform an aerial ballet. It's a good life, or as Colin says, by the trees, it's great to be a raven. After apprenticing to wise Greta, who plays Yoda to Colin's Luke Skywalker, our hero leaves his adopted flock to seek his destiny. Like Skywalker, Colin is marked for greatness, which means the evil ravens must either turn him to the dark side or kill him. I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying that, despite perilous challenges, our hero triumphs in the end. Ben Gad is a novelist with the heart of a naturalist, which means he spends too many pages explaining the ecosystem and too few revving the plot. I found myself charmed by Raven's End, though, despite its author's didactic tendencies. A raven's life, like a human's, can be cold, brutal, and short but it also offers opportunities to dance in the wind and plunge a beak into a rotting carcass. When I wander through the mountains this summer, I'll have the pleasure of seeing the landscape with new eyes, those of Ben Gad and a raven named Colin. Reviewer Bruce Barcott writes about the environment for Outside Magazine. Coming up, Rethinking How to Save Nature. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber. 
It's known that some animals use patterns of sunlight to find their way around. But scientists didn't know of any animals that used the moonlight a million times dimmer than the daytime sun. Apparently, though, it's not too dim for one African dung beetle. Beginning at sunset, the beetle starts its search for fresh piles of dung. Once it finds some, it has to get the dung away quickly to prevent other dung beetles from snatching its food. Scurrying in a straight line provides the quickest path to a secure location. Beetles plot this straight line by using polarized sunlight. When light waves from the sun strike particles in the atmosphere, the waves polarize or line up in straight lines. But dung beetles continue to forage after darkness falls. Scientists wondered, could the animals be using moonlight in the same way? So researchers monitored the insects at night. They observed that when the moon lights the sky, the beetles rush straight away. Without the moon, the beetles weave a wavy path. But was it the moon itself or the light emanating from it that was guiding them? So scientists used filters to change the direction of polarized moonlight. When the polarization changed, the beetles changed direction as well. Scientists now suspect many other animals may use polarized moonlight to guide them. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In recent years, organizations trying to save biological diversity have focused on what they call hotspots, threatened areas that have the highest concentration of individual species. The thinking behind the hotspot approach can be summed up as saving the most species for the fewest dollars. But now two researchers writing The American Scientist argue this may not be the best way to preserve nature. One of the authors is Peter Kariva. He's a scientist at the Nature Conservancy and a professor at Santa Clara University and the University of California at Santa Barbara. Professor Kariva says though the hotspot approach sounds logical, it has fundamental flaws. It assumes two things. One is it assumes that all that we care about are long lists of species, sort of like collectors, collecting long lists of species. And that's not all we care about in conservation. We care about working ecosystems. We care about erosion. We care about fisheries production. So we care about a lot of nature services that aren't captured just by listing species. The second thing is is that um, try to imagine that world. I mean, imagine a world where we have secured that small percentage of the land, but we haven't paid adequate attention to that other 98%. That could be a world that would suffer huge climate change because of degradation in the other environment. Um, even the the protected 2% might be imperiled if people so abuse the environment in the rest of the world. You've got a concept in your paper where you talk about the importance of functioning ecosystems. Can you explain this to me? Yeah, this is um, a, a constant concept that's really emerged within the last... Uh, 10 to 15 years in the ecological sciences, not so much in, in conservation. And the notion is, is that ecosystems do things. They provide services. They recycle water. They purify water. They uh, fix carbon. They um, may mitigate the effects of erosion or huge storms or huge droughts. They provide fertile ground for migratory birds or for, or for fish and so forth. So they, they perform these functions. Um, and... and uh, and those functions demand not just the list of species, but abundance of the species and intact interactions, predator-prey interactions, wolves and elks. They demand that you have the right functioning species in the water and so forth. So it's a, it's a notion that pays attention to processes. You also bring up an issue that has nothing to do directly with science, and that's the stability of local governments. 
Um, what does this have to do with how to direct conservation money? Conservation works in countries. And even though it's a biological activity, it demands laws that are enforced, agreements that are held to. It demands enforcement of the borders of a national park. It demands enforcement of restrictions on land use, whether it's logging or exploration for minerals. And so governance can totally inhibit effective conservation. If, if, if um, laws and signed agreements aren't agreed upon, if there's not enforcement of protected areas, all the money that you spend in a, in a country may be for naught. Now, some critics would say that uh, Colombia, uh, places like it, they have governance problems there. And, of course, it has a lot of hot spots. It would end up getting shortchanged. What's your response? Well, that's a good challenge. And I don't think we should ever ignore those countries like Colombia or Indonesia. So we would maintain a, a presence in those countries. But it's a matter of the degree of investments. So when governance is poor, I would argue that in Colombia and Indonesia, we should be paying attention to biological inventory, figuring out what are the species that are there and how we might work to improve them. Things that don't cost too much money and that don't require government support. And then if government improves, then we can invest heavily in establishing reserves and written agreements to protect species. So we have a limited amount of money. And every year, you know, our goal has to be to make the greatest and best use of that money in promoting conservation around the world. Now, based on what you've uh, researched and what you've explained here, you would, you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that programs should take into account not only species diversity, but unique ecosystems, uh, ecosystem services to humans and, and political stability of the host countries. Taking this as a framework, uh, what countries do you see that aren't getting their share of conservation attention today? Some of the countries that turned up in our analysis, and, and in no way is our analysis complete yet. We're still working to improve it. But a, a, a countries like Mozambique, Bangladesh, and Argentina are countries that don't really come out on hotspot lists, but it looks like they would be good returns on investment. Peter, it seems to me that a number of levels here, you're, you're, you're challenging the conventional uh, conservation uh, wisdom or dogma here, depending on one's perspective. Uh, what do you hear uh, in response to your papers from other conservation scientists? A lot of people, I, th I think it resonates. One of the reasons we wrote the paper, it really resonates with ideas I've heard from conservationists in the field. From, uh, uh, you know, imagine a world where we focus too much on hotspots, somebody living in Montana, somebody living in Alaska, somebody living in Mongolia, it's hard to connect them with nature if, if there's so much press and so much attention to these tropical rainforests. So it resonates with a lot of scientists because it admits the value of their local work, and local work is very important. On the other hand, there is some worry that it makes it look like conservationists haven't figured it all out yet, that we're not all on the same page and that we don't all agree. And to be frank, some people are, are worry about that. They worry that, geez... If it looks like the conservation NGOs don't all agree and they don't have their act together, then why should we be giving them money? So they're, they're concerned about that. And I think um, that misses the point. We do all agree on the problem. We all agree that biodiversity and our ecosystems are at risk and we have to protect them. We don't necessarily agree on how we should set priorities, but 
as organizations committed to biodiversity, we should also be committed to diversity of solutions, diversity of strategies, and diversities of ways of thinking about priorities. Peter Kariva is a lead scientist at the Nature Conservancy and a professor at Santa Clara University and the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. There are people who have identified their own wilderness hotspots. You might catch a glimpse of them in wild places across the country, people living illegally in shacks or shelters among the trees. You might describe these forest dwellers as homeless, but that's not how some of them see it. They call themselves wilderness squatters, people living outdoors entirely by choice. Reporter Robin White went in search of some of these people in Northern California. See, this here, this here is a Islay's cherry. There's a fox pooped here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Besh Surtahaley and his city friend David Schooley are showing me a steep trail up San Bruno Mountain, just south of San Francisco. That's a cherry. This is this got a coating on there as sweet as can be. Islay is the Indian name. Meaning Islay. Islay. Meaning delicious cherry. Right. The men argue about who's going to lead the way. Both of them are excited to show off the mountain and the place where Besh slept in a treehouse for 12 years. I, I just love the, the dappling leaves. and uh, it's, it's glorious just to, to look, just to open your eyes here. A thousand feet up San Bruno Mountain, the air is pretty good, and the view of the San Francisco Bay lifts your spirits. The 3,600-acre mountain is an island of wildness. Until recently, Besh Surtahaley lived here with his wife, Thelma. But then San Mateo County found them and knocked down the hand-built treehouse, which had been on the mountain for 20 years. Deputy County Manager Mary McMillan says the county was concerned for the couple's welfare. Health and safety fire, those were the biggest concerns. Um, There's no running water, there's no sewage, there are no facilities for that couple. So you, you really cannot reside in a park in that situation. Well, there is a pit toilet. Besh's friend David Schooley believes that San Mateo County just didn't have the imagination to let the couple live here. Schooley runs San Bruno Mountain Watch, an organization of volunteers that care for the mountain. He leads hikes with hundreds of school children. On every nature walk, he'd bring them to visit Besh and Thelma's treehouse. The kids are just drawn in immediately. It's like, whoa, it's the, it's the dream of their childhood. It's the right way. It's like it's a connection that we lose for living in the cities and the TVs and the freeways and the cars. Schooley says before Besh lived outdoors, he tended to drink, and his wife Thelma had mental health problems. But Schooley taught them how to identify non-native species, and for years they spent their time weeding the canyons and making them better habitats for the mountain's endangered butterflies. They've done more work than the county or the state or anybody. When the county began pressuring the couple to leave, Besh started drinking again, and Thelma got scared. In the end, she was persuaded to leave by social workers, and that made it easier to get Besh out. But he's not planning to move inside anytime soon. There may be several hundred wilderness squatters living in California's Bay Area. There are also reports of communities in the Sierra Nevada, in Portland, British Columbia, and in Utah. Some keep themselves secret for fear of eviction, which makes it hard for a reporter to find them to tell their story. 
One day I went looking for a community I'd heard about in the redwoods at the edge of a Bay Area city. So I found an abandoned hut here. Has a couple of chairs and there's a uh, storage bin here covered in water. I wonder what's inside. Well, it is somebody's stuff. There's a little notebook there with some pens and a message. Hi, whose is this beauty, it says. But even after a couple of hours, I still couldn't find people. I found out later I'd been only about a hundred yards from two inhabited huts. It took weeks of unreturned phone calls and letters to mailboxes before I finally met a man named Woodrat who would take me to his place. He was dressed head to toe in warm woolen clothing, and he walked kind of sideways. I can almost see you walking a certain way here. I kind of don't really have the sense of it anymore. It's been so long that I've been doing it. But... You're kind of stepping, stepping. Yeah. Kind of try to step in the same place most of the time. That way, he doesn't pound the ground into a trail, which is partly why it was so hard to find the dwellings. There are five people living in this secret community. They try not to draw attention from the corporation which owns the land they live on. Woodrat's hut is draped in military camouflage and hidden in tall manzanita bushes with dark red trunks. Can you just tell me about your setup? So you have a, looks like a Coleman stove. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just the camp stove and a little propane heater. Yeah, pretty, pretty well stocked kitchen. Lots of maple syrup. <laughs> Woodrat does go into town sometimes where he works for free on an anarchist magazine. His lifestyle doesn't require a lot of cash. His name he takes from an animal which was nesting outside an earlier cabin. The Woodrat was constantly building this pile of, of sticks in front of my door. And every morning I would get up and brush it away so I could get out the door. And one day it just, it just built the sticks in just the right way that I, that I couldn't get out. The animal's daily rebuilding was a metaphor for Woodrat's underdog life. Eventually, he himself had to rebuild his cabin when he was found out. The people in this community say the hide-and-seek game they play with security guards is more than made up for by waking up in the woods each morning and feeling themselves to be directly a part of nature. The urge for wildness is a deeply rooted part of the American soul. Henry David Thoreau sought refuge in a hut at Walden Pond for much the same reasons as today's tree-dwellers. But Thoreau wasn't squatting, and these people are. They have a more overt agenda. On another visit, it's a rainy day, and Woodrat's neighbor, Lenny, is busy sweeping his hut. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Or I like to say, cleanliness is godliness. Lenny's been squatting in the woods for 17 years. He's in his 50s, and he identifies himself as Jewish. He dresses in black and sports a pointed hat and stainless steel hose clamps as a form of jewelry. He flouts the law. He's a hobo, and he has a pirate radio show. He's a dumpster diver and built his hut with scavenged materials. How is that scavenging possible? Well, because we live in a very wasteful society is probably the main reason. Lenny's hut is shaped like a dented oval to accommodate the trees that grow around it. Compare that to a two or 3,000-square-foot home where they um, bulldoze a meadow or cut down a bunch of trees and then lawns and the driveway and the, and the road leading to it and the telephone poles. Lenny likens the forest squatters to latter-day Robin Hoods. 
Robin Hood and his merry gang lived in the forest and the 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 bad guy in that story is the sheriff, right? And the king. You know, you're not supposed to live on the king's land and um and the sheriff is the guy who comes around and tries to to kick you off, right? But for the people who have to play the sheriff of Nottingham, the problems caused by the squatters contradict the utopian values they claim to uphold. Maggie Fusari is the natural resource manager for the University of California at Santa Cruz, which owns 3,000 acres of parkland. She estimates perhaps 100 people live there in the university's forests, in tree houses, huts, and tents. Some of them are students saving money and using the bathrooms at the school gym to shower off, but some are non-students choosing to live out for political reasons. It's people who don't like living in the built world and who feel that their way of living lighter on the land is justified because they don't make as much of a mess of the land as those of us who live in the city. And there's definitely a righteousness element to their positions because I've talked to them and I know that. But it's not negligible. Fusari says she's worried the squatters will bring their own version of sprawl. Even in the backcountry, if one person is living there, then there's another, and then there's another, and it grows by accretion to the point where it really is going to have an impact. Fusari says she's sympathetic with the urge to live outdoors, but she says with the world population threatening to overwhelm nature, people have to accept that living in towns is the best way to preserve the open spaces. For their part, the forest squatters say their lifestyle is unconventional enough that they're not expecting hordes of people to be joining them anytime soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Robin White. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, it's been nearly two years since fire swept through Glacier National Park in Montana, burning more than 27,000 acres of forest. But the fire led to an unexpected boom in the population of one park resident. Yeah, I was grading the road through the inside from logging to Dutch Creek. And as I proceeded through this area, I noticed the ground started to move and jump and hop. And so I thought, oh, I'm hallucinating. The resurrection of the boreal toad next time on Living on Earth. And remember that between now and then you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Recording artist David Dunn didn't expect much when he first plunged his hydrophone into a small New Mexican pond. But he found that underwater insects make an astonishing array of sounds. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our staff includes Jennifer Chu, Andy Farnsworth, Elizabeth Klein, Tom Simon, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Nathan Marcy, and Liz Lempert. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our interns are Carolyn Johnson, Julia Keller, Taylor Ferguson, and Mary Beth Conway. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Al Avery. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. Chris Ballman is our senior producer. And this week's program was produced by Diane Toomey. 
I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer of Living on Earth. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.